1: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll go to St. Augustine to visit the Castillo de San Marcos and other sites in America's oldest city.
2: By the time the people stepped ashore at what would be Jamestown and also at Plymouth, The children that stepped ashore to found St. Augustine had their own grandchildren or great-grandchildren.
1: Remembering the heyday of red snapper fishing on Florida's
3: east coast... The biggest catch I made in one anchorage was roughly about 2,500 pounds of snapper and with a few grouper.
1: And we'll look at the history of efforts to manipulate the Kissimmee River, some of which were opposed by writer Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. A drummer dressed in the heavy uniform of a colonial Spanish soldier accompanies the marching of fellow historic reenactors at the Castillo de San Marcos in St. Augustine. After its founding in 1565, the city of St. Augustine was protected by a series of nine wooden forts for the next 100 years. After English raids became increasingly violent, Mariana, the Queen Regent of Spain, ordered that a more substantial masonry fort be constructed to protect the city. Construction of the Castillo de San Marcos began in 1672 with Spanish, Native Americans, and people of African descent working together. The fort was completed in 1695. Doyle Sapp is Chief of Interpretation at the Castillo de San Marcos National Monument. Sapp says that the fort's location across from Anastasia Island and the building materials used to construct it led to the Castillo de San Marcos never being taken in battle, only by treaty. Uh, location
4: is everything. Uh, this was along the, the trade routes of the Gulf Stream. It could protect, it, it served as a base to protect the, early on, the treasure fleets going from the New World to Spain. Uh, the coquina it's the only stone that you can fly, find in Florida, but it had an added bonus of, besides it being strong, it, I guess the best analogy would be uh, like firing a BB into styrofoam. 18th century round cannon shot, they're going to be absorbed rather than shatter the stone
1: cause a lot of damage to the people inside. Just seven years after the fort was completed, the English launched a major attack on St. Augustine in 1702. As described in vivid detail in the Judy Lindquist novel, Saving Home, the entire population of St. Augustine, as well as their Native American neighbors, were protected within the walls of the Castillo de San Marcos for almost two months. Uh, There were about 1,500
4: people, including the 200 soldiers, here for about 50 days. Uh, This was the first major test of the Castillo de San Marcos against a formal siege. it was it successfully held out against the English for help to come from the nearest Spanish town, which of course was Havana, Cuba.
1: As Florida changed hands, so did the Castillo de San Marcos. While the British controlled Florida from 1763 to 1784, the structure was called Fort St. Mark. From 1821 to 1942, the American government called it Fort Marion. When the National Park Service took control of the fort from the War Department in 1942, it was given back the name Castillo de San Marcos. Perhaps the only defeat of the fort came from within its walls. In 1837, during the Second Seminole Indian War, Native Americans were imprisoned in the fort. Tradition holds that Coacuchi, also known as Wildcat, was able to escape through a barred window high above the ground, encouraging others to follow. Doyle sap. There is some debate
4: about that as what as whether the escape actually took place here. The story goes that uh, the Seminoles starved themselves and slipped out through a window in this room uh, However, if you look at the window and remember that there were bars there uh, i don't I don't know if anybody could actually. Uh, Fit through those win- that window, uh, if if like I said, there's some debate among scholars as to whether it actually happened here or at another fort, uh, another
5: outpost. Good morning, welcome to the Castillo de San Marcos National Monument and this morning's historic weapons demonstration. What we're going to be doing for you guys is we're going to be loading and firing a three-gun battery. We're going to do it by using the 1740 Spanish garrison drill. Now this is the actual Castilian Spanish that would have echoed through this fort over 265 years ago. Back then, this is part of the everyday life and experience of the soldiers who lived and worked here as well as the city of St. Augustine. So guys, what you're going to get, the blast
3: from the past. <laughs> hey, you gotta go for it. you right know. The Speckers of Sulaga!
6: Simon and Cubana forgot. Don't about the fuego. But the fuego can you? auto? the Cover your ears. Fuego.
1: The Florida Historical Society was created in St. Augustine in 1856, making it the oldest cultural organization in the state and the only statewide historical society. The St. Augustine Historical Society is the oldest local historical society in the state. Susan Parker is executive director of the St. Augustine Historical Society and holds a Ph.D. in Spanish colonial history. She explains how her society got started.
2: Well, the organization started out in 1883, like a lot of them, rather informally, people just getting together to discuss things. And early on, um, had a focus as much on kind of scientific oddities. So our early collections have a lot of, had a lot of fossils and supposedly, you know, shrunken heads and all those other sorts of things. And as time went by, it changed its focus away from the science, and the science part of the name was actually removed, and it became the St. Augustine Historical Society. But early on, we had all sorts of curiosities displayed in our building down on the bayfront, which, unfortunately, in a fire around 1914, most of them, most of the collections were burned.
1: After the early 20th century fire, the St. Augustine Historical Society shifted their focus to the preservation of historic structures, including the Castillo de San Marcos.
2: And the historical society ran that for about 15-18 uh, years. Uh, Well, it was still under the the Department of War before it went to the National Park Service. And then in 1918, we bought the oldest house, or the Gonzalez Alvarez House. Then we bought the house next door, the Tovar House. Both of those are first Spanish period buildings. And uh, we became the trustees of the Fernandez Lambias House, which is across the street, which is also another first Spanish period building and about uh, 20 years ago uh, also then took over another Spanish colonial building which is where our research library is now, the Sagi Kirby Smith House. So we have four Spanish colonial buildings under our care. Um, The Spanish colonial buildings in St. Augustine are um, ours and others are very unique resource in the country. they are some of the few Spanish colonial buildings in the U.S. and certainly some of the few, very few, east of the Mississippi River and also some of the few that were actually residences. Most of what survives from the Spanish colonial period are government buildings because they were sturdier, better taken care of, but St. Augustine has quite a collection of residences.
1: Some of the historic homes preserved by the St. Augustine Historical Society are today used as museums that demonstrate how people lived in the 18th century.
2: And the oldest house actually portrays the people that lived in the oldest house, the Gonzalez-Alvarez House, which is a National Historic Landmark designated by the National Park Service. And we present the uh, first Spanish, British, second Spanish period families, and then into around the Flagler era and uh and present them as as they as they would have lived there it was initially and and before the building was there there was another building we don't know very much about that because so much of the documentation was lost when saint augustine was burned in 172 Uh, but we know that there was an artilleryman and his family living there sometime by the early to middle 1720s and we date it from that time period it it could have been built before 1720 but we just don't have the specific documentation to uh, to clarify that
1: in addition to serving as museum and exhibit space some of the historic homes are available for public use
2: people can still go in them the tovar house at the moment is uh, we're getting we're making plans for it 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 had a long-term exhibit in there that has moved out and then the fernandez lambia's house across the street is available for parties and for weddings so uh you know during the really nice weather we usually have several hundred people enjoying it in the courtyard in the spring, and then the Sagi-Kirby-Smith House is our research library. So that's open four, four and a half days a week for people to come in and do research and also admire the building.
1: Many American history books overlook the fact that St. Augustine was the first permanent European settlement in what would become the United States, focusing instead on the colonies established in New England. Susan Parker.
2: I also think that's because when they hear about the Spanish in today's United States, they largely hear about the expeditions that trekked through. And there's not much remarked about the fact that they actually established a settlement, St. Augustine. They tried some others, but established St. Augustine, which endured, which had families here for years and years and years and years and years. And as I often say, to make it very simple, that by the time the people stepped ashore at what would be Jamestown and also at Plymouth, The children that stepped ashore to found St. Augustine had their own grandchildren or great-grandchildren, which makes a point as to how long they were here. But they just don't see the Spanish as being residents and families. They were only soldiers and explorers.
1: Although Florida would not become part of the United States until 1845, St. Augustine remains the oldest city in North America, established in 1565. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about our annual meeting and other special events, discover great books about Florida, and much more.
7: Bet you're going fishing all of the time Going fishing too. That's your life, your sweet wife. Catch more fish than you. Many fish bites if you got good bait. Here's a little tip that I would like to relate. Many fish bites if you got good bait. I'm a going fishing, yes, I'm going fishing, and my baby going fishing too.
1: The 1940s and 50s were the heydays of fishing for red snapper on Florida's east coast. Janie Gould talks with a fisherman who remembers.
8: When a new type of depth finder became affordable in the late 1940s, a whole new world offshore was open to fishing for red snapper. Snapper, which tend to stay close to the bottom, were plentiful and brought good prices. There were no catch limits either, so it was good while it lasted. Charles Gibson was a struggling young fisherman from the Northeast. He had served in the Merchant Marine during the war and came to Fort Pierce in 1949 to fish for snapper.
3: Up to that point, it had been sort of a hand-to-mouth existence, and you sort of had enough to buy groceries and enough gas to go out the next time. It was a money-making proposition. The fish were very, very big then. For instance, south snappers would average between 20 and 25 pounds. The biggest catch I made in one anchorage was roughly about 2,500 pounds of snapper, and with a few grouper. Uh,
8: But the party didn't last forever. In just two years, there were noticeably fewer snapper. Gibson started bringing in more grouper, which commanded a fraction of the price paid for snapper.
3: We'd start with maybe two-thirds or three-quarters snapper, and then gray grouper or black groupers. Finally, the snowy group, if you really got a place that had been fished out badly, that was the only thing you got. If I'd stayed in the fishery after 51, I think I would have been in trouble.
8: So how much did you make per pound
3: as I recall, the snapper prices went between 22 and $0.25 cents a pound on the average. And the best price that I can recall was about $0.28. Grupa would go roughly about from $0.08 cents to maybe $0.15 cents a pound. The Warsaw Group, they were very big. They'd usually break our gear. The ones we'd bring up would be anywhere from 100 to maybe 150 pounds. But the problem with those things is, unless there happened to be a shortage of fish at the time, most of this went to the New York market, incidentally. The price would be so low for the Warsaw Group, it was actually we just cut them loose. As I look back at it, environmentally, it was a disaster because I can remember these fish, when they'd come up there, swim bladders would come out and expand, and it would act like a life preserver, and you'd see them floating back to the shark bumping them. It was a horrible waste, but didn't pay to bring them in.
8: Snapper fishing was never the same.
3: It never rebounded. It couldn't rebound. It was a virgin fishery, and we just tapped it off.
8: Did it make you rich for a while, or did you feel rich?
3: Well, I I tell you, it made a fair amount of money in the Merchant Marine. But compared to the economy at the time for people with very little education, I mean, I hadn't even finished high school. It was an awful lot better than working in a gas station or trying to sell shoes. But I think what saved us when the fishery went bad, frankly, was the Korean War.
8: A number of fishermen who had served in World War II re-enlisted for Korea when snapper fishing went bad. Gibson went back to sea with a merchant marine. Did you eat snapper back then, or did the sight of it make you sick?
3: Oh, no, no. As a matter of fact, I liked it very much. and Usually, just as a matter of economy, we'd eat the front end of, of a snapper because quite often we'd get fish that would be shark bitten. They'd take the tail end of the shark off and would be set with actually the best fillets that you're up near the gills.
8: It wasn't unusual for Gibson to see a couple or three sharks chasing his catches, but on one occasion it was a mob scene out there.
3: Everywhere you could look were sharks.
8: So there were fins everywhere.
3: Yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah. We moved about a mile, there were still sharks there. I would have hated to fall overboard in that kind of a situation. It wouldn't have been much fun.
8: Charles Gibson is a seasonal resident of Fort Pierce. His grandfather, also named Charles Dana Gibson, was the famed illustrator of America's Gilded Age. His pen and ink drawings of a young woman known as the Gibson Girl typified the era.
1: Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report
7: bet you going fishing all of the time Baby going fishing too Bet your life, your sweet wife she going to catch more fish than you Many fish bites if you got good bait Oh, here's a little tip that I would like to relay Many fish bites if you got good bait I'm going fishing, mama's going fishing And the baby going fishing too
1: Find out about all of the benefits of becoming a member of the Florida Historical Society by visiting us online at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers.
9: I want to know
1: During the 1960s, 3,000 square miles of the Florida peninsula were profoundly altered as the meandering Kissimmee River was replaced by an artificial canal. Phil Dudley explores how the history of the Kissimmee River reflects our changing attitudes toward Florida's natural landscape.
5: Until very recently, I think there was a mentality that suggested we could rearrange landscapes for our benefit, and over the last couple of decades, it's occurred to us that we frequently cause more problems than we solve by rearranging landscapes. University
0: of South Florida geologist Chris Mindel, Like many other native or longtime Floridians, he feels a certain nostalgia for a less spoiled, less developed landscape from an earlier time. The rivers, wetlands, and forests of what might be called the real Florida.
5: I wonder sometimes, I keep thinking about what Florida was when I was a kid growing up in the 60s in Melbourne Beach, and I think in terms of... Wouldn't it be nice to return parts of Florida to some semblance of that former landscape?
0: The Kissimmee River once meandered lazily for 103 miles from Lake Kissimmee near Orlando, south to Lake Okeechobee. It was rich with wildlife, including 19 species of waterfowl and 17 kinds of wading birds, not to mention nearly 40 species of fish. According to Lou Toth, a South Florida water management scientist who spent 19 years working on river restoration.
6: It was nationally renowned as a largemouth bass fishery, which was kind of interesting because at the time the river really had very limited access to the public. So to have had a nationally renowned largemouth bass fishery tells me that it must have been a tremendous fishing
9: resource. But
0: in the late 1950s, the Kissimmee became the victim of efforts to drain wetland areas around south-central Florida in the name of flood control, something that had been an issue since the beginning of the 20th century and especially after the hurricane of 1928 when well over 2,000 people died in flooding around Lake Okeechobee. Between 1962 and 1971, the Army Corps of Engineers turned the 103-mile-long river into a 56-mile canal, complete with five water control gates that created a series of ponds or impoundment areas. Over two-thirds of the wetlands were drained
5: along the riverbed, now renamed C-38. These canals all over South and South Central Florida are given numbers. It's very much a symptom and a product of of that mentality that says we can do what we want with the landscape and ignore possible repercussions or pretend those repercussions won't ever happen.
0: But while new land for farming and development was created, the environmental results of the straightening were quickly noticed.
5: And ecologists and biologists recognized almost immediately after this channelization of the river that not only the numbers of birds, fish, and wildlife declined, the species diversity declined as well, substantially.
0: As Floridians awoke to a new environmental consciousness in the 1970s, a political backlash mounted against the canal. Experts showed how fertilizers and other nutrients from cattle ranching and home development, washing into the state's rivers and lakes, were leading to what was called eutrophication.
5: Excessive nutrients are great for aquatic plants, and so water bodies can become choked with aquatic plants The problem is is when they die the decomposer organisms get to work on them and they start consuming excessive amounts of dissolved oxygen in the water. So then the fish that depend on high levels of dissolved oxygen die and are replaced with what many people call trash fish like gar, bottom feeders, species that are adapted to lower levels of dissolved oxygen in the water.
0: It also became evident that phosphorus and other agricultural chemicals no longer filtered out by marshes were being channeled into Lake Okeechobee. This aroused the anger of environmentalist Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, author of River of Grass, the book that stimulated the movement to protect Florida's wetlands. She lashed out at the Army Corps in a 1991 interview.
2: The worst thing they did was run that canal down the meanders of the Kissimmee River. We got them to break down the lowest part of the canal so that that water spread out as we had hoped it would. So we proved that it could be done, but the engineers don't want to do any more. They don't want to spend any federal money on it anymore. They say it wouldn't do the federal government any good. Well, they are the ones who did it originally. It was federal money in the first place. That never did them any good either. In
0: 1992, the state and federal government agreed to split the cost for restoration, and the South Florida Water Management District and the Corps began buying cattle ranches, destroying water control gates, and backfilling parts of the canal. The current goal is to restore some 43 miles by 2010 only about half of the river's original length.
6: The restoration of the Kissimmee is certainly an an indication of increased environmental awareness and appreciation of environmental values, but I would say that a channelization project with the impacts that the Kissimmee channelization had on the system would not occur in this country today. I don't think it would be permitted Uh, And I don't think the public would
5: stand for it. I think even as late as the 50s and 60s, the prevailing mentality was that engineers can improve upon and correct what we perceive as mistakes in the landscapes, excessive amounts of water and navigability of streams and so forth. And I think uh, it's only been in the last couple of decades that it's occurred to us that these aren't necessarily mistakes but that there are very real limitations to what people can do on the landscape before they start to cause more problems for themselves.
0: I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council.
1: Listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. The Florida Historical Society is holding its annual meeting May 27th through 29th at the Casa Monica Hotel in St. Augustine. The event features many great speakers, including Florida historian Michael Gannon and City of St. Augustine archaeologist Carl Halbert. Panel discussion topics include Colonial Florida, the work of William Bartram, Native Floridians, the Seminole Wars, politics in Florida, Florida in visual imagery, Florida writers, and much, much more. During the Florida Frontiers panel, you can talk with me and the other contributors to the program, Janie Gould and Bill Dudley. Exciting tours include the Civil Rights Movement in St. Augustine, a cruise on the Victory Three, and much more. That's the Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting, May 27th through 29th, at the Casa Monica Hotel in St. Augustine. For more information and a registration form, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and click on the Annual Meeting button. You can also join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. And be sure to join us again next week right here for Florida Frontiers. Have a great week. I'm Ben Markle.